Good morning. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do pray that you would set our souls afire with your holy word. Father, we pray that the word of Christ would dwell richly in our hearts. We pray that the Holy Spirit would come and illuminate the truth and beauty and power of your word and that you would transform our lives, conform us to the image of your Son. Uh, Father, we pray that through the word that you would direct our steps, lead us in a straight path, make us a, a compelling testimony of your saving power to our neighbors and friends in the Oxford Hills. Father, we pray that you would lift high the name of Jesus in our midst and display the glory of, of Christ through our words and deeds. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, next, next week, Lord willing, I will ask you at the beginning of the sermon, by the way, maybe to turn this down a little bit, I'm getting a little static here. Um, what's that? Um, I'll ask you to turn to the book of Genesis, because uh, next week we're going to start in verse 1 and, and, and moving forward. Um, but this, this particular sermon is an introduction trying to set the stage for this new sermon series. So I've, I've titled this, this particular sermon, Stepping into Genesis, just to try to set things up and prepare us for, for what is coming. And I want to begin with just asking the why question. Why preach through the book of Genesis? The first reason to preach through Genesis is the necessity of paying attention to the entirety of the Scriptures. It is so important to teach the whole counsel of God, Acts 20, uh, 27. This is what the Apostle Paul did as he summarized his ministry. Yes? Yeah. I pulled, I pulled it up. Is that better? Okay. Thank you for communicating. I appreciate that. Sometimes we, we're afraid to communicate in the middle of something, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Less painful for you all for the rest of the sermon. <laughs> As Paul summarized his, his ministry in Ephesus, he, he said in his farewell address to the elders in Acts 20, verses 24 to 27, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole 
counsel of God. This is what the apostles did, and this is what the church's pastors and elders and teachers must do today to proclaim the gospel of God's grace, to proclaim the kingdom of God, and to proclaim the whole counsel of God. To teach and declare the whole counsel of God means to faithfully communicate the full scope of God's will for His people so that His people are established in the truth, strengthened in their faith, and transformed into fruitful servants of the Lord. One commentator, David Peterson, defines the whole counsel of God as the whole plan of God for humanity and the created order revealed in the Scriptures and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We want people to know the entire scope of God's plan and how they fit into it. Now, there are a number of legitimate strategies to pursue in order to proclaim and explain the full scope of God's will. One strategy is to spend significant time in different portions of Scripture in order to get an increasingly informed understanding of all that God has revealed. If we only teach from our few favorite books, or if we only teach from Paul's letters, or if we only teach from the New Testament, then we are unwisely limiting our doctrinal diet. Of course, we have to take the long view. To teach the full scope of God's will from all the Scriptures is not the sort of thing that is done in a few weeks. You can give a helpful summary or overview in a few weeks, but in-depth teaching of God's Word takes years, even decades. In 2018 and 19, we devoted over 40 sermons to Paul's letter to the Philippians. And in 2019 to 21, with a, a noted six-month hiatus in 2020, we devoted over 50 sermons to the Gospel of Mark. And in addition to those two major sermon series, there's been a smattering of other sermons, most from the New Testament, some from the Old, some topical sermons. Overall, about 80% of my sermons at South Paris Baptist Church have been from the New Testament from a New Testament passage. About 10% have been from an Old Testament passage, and about another 10% have been topical, drawing upon multiple passages in the course of the message. Of course, it's not all about percentages, but this does illustrate how we, we tend to give more attention to the New Testament than to the Old. And this, while this lopsided preference for the New Testament is understandable, we should think about what we are doing and why we are doing it. One of my favorite theological authors likes to call the Old Testament by a different name. He likes to call it the First Testament. What we call the Old Testament is not old and obsolete, but is first and foundational and vibrating with life. One Old Testament man prayed this way, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Behold, I long for your precepts in your righteousness. Give me life. That's from Psalm 119. The man who prayed that had his head on straight. The folks who have not discovered such delight 
in the Old Testament statutes and testimonies and precepts are the ones who are out of touch. As Christians, we must have a very high view of the Old Testament Scriptures. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, with the Old Testament Scriptures in mind, he wrote to him, he said, from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That's from 2 Timothy 3. Although the New Testament is also God-breathed Scripture, when Paul wrote those words, he was primarily thinking of the Old Testament. For the New Testament books were still very much in the process of being written and copied and distributed. Paul knew that the Old Testament is God speaking to us for our good. The Apostle Peter tells us to pay attention to the prophetic word as to a lamp shining in a dark place. 2 Peter 1.19 And then Peter goes on to say that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here again, Peter was thinking especially of the Old Testament. Old Testament Scripture is divine speech. By God's will and not man's will, God's words were written down by men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Devout and thoughtful men were the instruments of writing, but God is the ultimate author and He is the one who caused His faithful and reliable words to be written down for our good. The book of Genesis and all the Old Testament and all the Bible is God speaking to us. Genesis is the light of divine truth shining forth into our dark world. Genesis is able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Genesis is able to profit us to do us much good, to cause us to flourish because God breathed it out in order to teach us, reprove us, correct us, and train us in righteousness. So the first reason to preach Genesis is the necessity of paying attention to the comprehensiveness, the full scope of Scripture, and having devoted so much of the teaching thus far to the New Testament, it is appropriate now to go to the First Testament. In order to hear and understand the whole counsel of God, we need every part of Scripture. We need the penmanship of Luke and the Psalms of David. We need the writings of the apostles like Peter and Paul and the writings of the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. We need the history of the early church in the book of Acts. And the history of Israel and Samuel, Kings and Chronicles. We need the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we need the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. As we tune our ears to what God has said in different portions of Scripture and how He has said it, we will better understand who God is and we will better understand His plan for our own lives. Now, of course, we could legitimately turn to any portion of Scripture and say what I just said. This, this, this book or this portion is God-breathed and it's given to us for our transformation. That's true. 
However, there are reasons why it is especially important to give focused attention to Genesis. And, and so here's the second reason. The second reason to preach Genesis is because it serves a unique foundational role to the entire Bible. If you want to know how any book works, especially historical books that have an unfolding storyline and document how that storyline unfolds over time, you need to know how the book starts. Doesn't that make sense? I mean, if I handed you a book and said, this book is just tremendous. It's a, it's a great read. The, the returns will, will be very profitable for you, this 66-chapter book. But frankly, if you feel free to skip the first two-thirds of the book, you know, chapters 1 to 39, you can skip that. And really, even in, the, even in the last third of the book, all you really need are chapters 43 and 45. You can go figure out what those are in my analogy. <laughs> They'll tell you everything you need to know. And, you know, if you really want to, go ahead and read chapter 66, but it will make your head spin. <laughs> I mean, does anyone have a problem with that? Good, I'm glad you do. The reality is that New Testament Christianity has deep theological foundations, and many of these foundations are found in the rich soil of the first book, the book of Genesis. Why does this world exist? Why is the world the way it is? Why are we here? What is man's role within the world? What are the opportunities and responsibilities set before us? What are the dangers and hardships to expect along the way? How are we supposed to relate to other creatures? How are we supposed to relate to each other? How are we supposed to relate to God? Who is God? And what is He like? What does it mean to live under His blessing as opposed to the alternative, which is to suffer under His curse? What is wrong with the world? And what is the remedy? What is God's design for men, for women, for marriage? What is the significance of Adam, of Noah, of Abraham, of Israel, of Judah? What about the covenants and the promises? How does the first book set the stage for and point forward to the Messiah? To illustrate the significance of Genesis for a proper understanding of the Christian faith, just consider these few examples. The New Testament begins the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham is one of the pivotal figures in the book of Genesis. Abraham's history spans over a dozen chapters in that first book. In Mary's prayerful song recorded in Luke chapter 1, she concluded with these words, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to His offspring forever. Later, when, when Paul takes time to explain the doctrine of justification by faith in Romans chapter 4 and Galatians chapter 3, Abraham is exhibit A. If we have the same kind of faith that Abraham had, then we are true children of Abraham and are therefore beneficiaries of God's promises to Abraham. What does it mean to trust God and to walk with the God in whom we trust? Well, to answer that question, one of the best things you could do is to study the life of Abraham. 
So as we walk through the book of Genesis, one of the things I plan to do is to show you how the foundation that we encounter in Genesis is built upon in the New Testament. Do you remember when the Pharisees asked Jesus a question about divorce in Mark chapter 10? Jesus answered their question by referring to instruction in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. So I want, I want to I want to pay attention to those kind of things as we're walking through Genesis so you can see how, how the New Testament is grounded in the First Testament. Here's another reason. It's actually a subset of the second reason, still dealing with the importance of foundations. It's always worthwhile to revisit the foundations, but I would argue that it is especially important right now in the year 2022. Why? Because our society's drift from our Judeo-Christian influences has been profound. We were once a nation that was significantly influenced by the Bible, both the First Testament and the New Testament. There is a remarkable testimony to the legacy of Moses at the meeting place of the United States House of Representatives in the United States Capitol. In the House chamber, over the gallery doors, there are 23 portraits of significant lawgivers from various eras of human history. Which of these 23 figures is portrayed at the center? This is remarkable. The architect of the Capitol government website says, the 11 profiles in the eastern half of the chamber face left. And the 11 in the western half face right. So that all look towards the full face relief of Moses in the center of the north wall. How easily we memorialize Moses on a wall in the, in, our, in the year 1950. That's about when it was put up. And how easily we trivialize what Moses actually taught in all of our actual moral and legal decisions in the 21st century. Here's the point. The days of a Christianized West are long gone. The influence has been cast aside, the heritage has been denigrated, and the past Christianization has been rejected and slowly but surely is being reversed. Now, my, my main point in preaching is not, to, is not to affect change out there, but, but the reality is, is that the change out there has a way of affecting us. Slowly and imperceptibly, it can subvert the Christian community. And we ourselves can go way adrift of our foundations. And so instead of being a testimony to and salt and light to the wider culture, instead we are, we are, being, we are being weakened and diluted because the influence is running the other way. Do you see? So 
I think it is doubly important to set forth the foundations, to make sure that we understand what the foundations are and to make sure that we are thinking and living upon those foundations. And if in the course of studying these foundations, you come to realize that your life is totally out of sync with the God-breathed words of Genesis, then you'll have a choice to make. Walk in repentance or walk away. Go God's way and live under His blessing accompanied by the world's disapproval or go your, under, go your own way and suffer under His curse while the world cheers you on. The choice is yours, but know this, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James 4.4 4. What we want this church to be is a church that is established in the faith, grounded in the truth, rooted in the foundation, so that what we produce is good and righteous fruit that is pleasing to the Lord. And let's be clear, it is good and righteous fruit that presents a clear witness to the world. The perishing people of this world, so in need of the Savior's grace, don't need a church that appears to be as confused and sloppy and uncourageous as they are. Do we have in our midst the clarity of God's Word? Do we have in our midst the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Do we have in our midst grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? Then let's act like it. Let's be transformed by the grace of God and so present a clear and compelling testimony to western Maine and beyond. Now, there are several things that I want you to keep in mind as we begin this journey in the book of Genesis. But first, before I give you those five things, let me say something about my tentative plan for preaching through Genesis. Genesis is not a short book. Did you know that? The Gospel of Mark has 16 chapters and we unpacked it in 56 sermons. I had said 55 earlier, but that was, uh, it's 56. Which means that on average, each chapter generated three and a half sermons. Now you can do the math. If we preach through Genesis at the same rate, then the book of Genesis would generate 175 sermons. Now I, I honestly, I'm not sure, I, I'm not sure of this. I, I honestly don't expect to preach through Genesis at the same rate. I think a, I think a, a faster rate is appropriate in terms of the way the book works, but it's still a long book and it's still going to generate a lot of sermons. So in order to keep the journey fresh and digestible, I plan to preach through the book of Genesis in, in, in four sections. The first section, about 11 chapters, tell, uh, tells us how the world began and how it got off course. The second section, about 13 chapters, tells us about God's dealings with Abraham. The third section, about 12 chapters, tells us about God's dealings with Jacob. And the final section, about 14 chapters, tells us about how God preserved Jacob's family through Joseph. What I propose to do is to preach the first section and then take a short break and return to the New Testament for a little while and then come back to section two and then take a break and then section three and then take a break and then section four and then we'll be done. And I would guesstimate that when we're done, when we finish the book of Genesis, the next 
presidential election will be in the rearview mirror. But how far in the rearview mirror, who can say? Time will tell. Pack your belongings. It's going to be a, going to be a long journey. Now, five things. Five, five things um, as we walk through the book of Genesis. Number one, remember that the Bible has a central storyline that begins in Genesis and culminates in Revelation. The Bible is not a hodgepodge collection of inspiring religious thoughts. Instead, the Bible recounts the unfolding of God's activity within history and how God is working His plan from start to finish. Genesis chapter 1 recounts the creation of heaven and earth. In Genesis chapter 2, we are told that the tree of life was in the midst of the garden that God had planted in Eden. In Genesis 3, an intruder shows up in paradise. The crafty serpent deceives the woman. The man exchanges the truth for a lie. And the chapter concludes with God banishing the man from the garden. And henceforth, the tree of life is inaccessible. From Genesis 3 onward, the Bible unfolds God's plan to redeem sinners and to restore the glory that was lost when Adam fell into sin. This plan of redemption culminates in Revelation chapters 20 to 22. In Revelation chapter 20, the devil, that ancient serpent, the intruder of Genesis 3, is thrown into the lake of fire. The intruder shall intrude no more. In Revelation chapter 21, the first heaven and the first earth passes away. And a new heaven and a new earth emerges in its place. In Revelation 22, the tree of life is present and accessible in the holy city. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And now, at the dawn of eternity, those who have been redeemed are not banished from God's garden, but instead abide in the very presence of God forever and ever. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. Revelation 21.3. Not everyone gets in, of course. Sinners who remained in their sin will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Revelation 21.8. But sinners who were rescued out of their sin and were transformed by God's grace will inherit eternal life as God's beloved sons and daughters. So as we turn to the opening pages of the Bible, remember that we are being introduced to a storyline that runs straight through the whole Bible and culminates in the final pages of the Bible. The second thing to remember The center of the Bible's overall message is the Messiah. The entire Bible, including the book of Genesis, bears witness to the Messiah, the God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 24-27 says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to His disciples in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Seventeen verses later, Jesus said to His disciples, These are My words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about Me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Luke 24, 44. 
Did you notice those two references to Moses? These references to Moses point to the body of work associated with Moses, namely the first five books of the Bible. In the Gospel of John, Jesus told the misguided Jewish leaders, you search the Scriptures, referring to the Old Testament, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me, yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. Later in the same chapter, Jesus said to these same people, for if you believed Moses, you would believe Me, for He wrote of Me. Ponder what Jesus is saying here. The Scriptures bear witness about Jesus. Moses wrote about Jesus. And the truth is, if we are blind to the glory of Jesus, then we are alienated from God, we remain in the realm of darkness and death, and we miss the heartbeat of the Scriptures. What is the heartbeat of the Scriptures? To make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. If we miss that, then all the historical data and doctrinal instruction will do us no good. The, the historical data and doctrinal inf instruction is really there. It's really there, but its glory and power is hidden from unbelievers. This is what Paul says about Jews who read the Old Testament without trusting in Jesus. To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And when the veil is removed, what do they see? When the veil is removed, we see the glory of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So get this. My primary purpose in, in preaching, in preaching the Scriptures, in preaching Genesis, my, my primary purpose in preaching is that through the proclaimed Word, you would see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means that my primary purpose in preaching involves an absolutely impossible goal unless the Holy Spirit shows up. And if the Holy Spirit shows up and shows you the glory of Jesus shining off the pages of Scripture, then everything else will fall into its proper place. So as we step into this new series, remember that the book of Genesis is written to show you the glory of God's Son. Let's earnestly pray that all of us would see it and be satisfied by it. Number three, Remember that God's intent for the Scriptures is that the Scriptures direct you on the path of love. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord with all that you are and have. The second most important commandment is to love your neighbor with the same amount of energy and thoughtfulness by which you care for yourself. This is from Matthew 22. These two commandments are foundational to all of God's instruction. Jesus said, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Matthew twenty-two forty. And Jesus made a similar statement in the Sermon on the Mount when He said, 
So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Matthew 7.12 While we don't want to turn the book of Genesis into nothing more than a series of inspirational moral lessons, the truth is that the moral lessons are there. That is certainly one of the things that Paul had in mind when he told us that Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So as we walk through Genesis, expect to find foundational moral instruction to obey. Expect to find normative patterns to conform to. Expect to find the Holy Spirit highlighting positive examples to imitate and negative examples to avoid. Avoid. Come to the Word as a humble learner who is teachable and open to correction and eager to do life God's way. Number four. I could say this about any sermon series, but it seems especially worthwhile to say this now. Here's the fourth thing I want you to keep in mind. I want you to keep in mind how important it is that the teaching that takes place in the church must also be taught and reinforced and discussed in your home. In Genesis chapter 18, the Lord made this statement about His call upon Abraham. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Genesis 18-19. That single verse is loaded with significance, but for now I just want to point out that Abraham had a solemn responsibility to disciple the members of his household and to bring them into practical obedience to the ways of the Lord. Father Abraham was to equip the members of his household to be practitioners of justice and righteousness. Even though Abraham's role as the progenitor of a great nation through which the Lord promised to bless the whole world is unique. That's a unique role. Nevertheless, his basic fatherly responsibility to disciple his household is common to all. We all share in that responsibility. It was enjoined upon all fathers in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now this is the commandment that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son by keeping all His statutes and His commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And the New Testament reiterates this instruction. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Ephesians 6.4 And not to be forgotten... Godly mothers laboring alongside their husbands will also seek to impart the ways of the Lord to their children. Hear, my son, your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Proverbs 1, 8 and 9. 
Now, here's the thing. It is true that what happens in this pulpit has a formative and pace-setting function for the church family. However, what happens in this pulpit is no substitute for what must happen in your home. This one hour and 45 minute worship service is pivotal for our edification as a church family, but the make it or break it, the make it or break it of rubber meets the road discipleship is your home life. The foundations set forth in the book of Genesis must be expressed and explained and wrestled with and worked out in your household. So dads especially, but also moms, and I don't want to leave the grandparents out. As we voyage through Genesis, let yourself be renewed in the foundations with the mindset that you are being equipped from this pulpit to talk about these things at home with your children and grandchildren. Let these sermons generate lines of thought in your own mind that will bear fruit in stimulating discussion around the dinner table or in the living room. That must happen. Or this will bear very little fruit. Fifth, the fifth and final thing that I want you to keep in mind is this. The fundamental question that confronts us whenever we hear God's Word is whether or not we are going to trust the One who is speaking. Beyond the preacher who is proclaiming the Word and even beyond the inspired human authors who wrote down the Word, we must reckon with God for in the Scriptures He is the One speaking to us. And the question is, will you trust Him? Will you trust Him when He tells you how the world came to be and how He designed the world to work? Will you trust Him when He tells, your, when he tells you how your own life is supposed to work? Because it is at just this point where the crafty serpent attacks and whispers, did God actually say, Genesis 3.1, the enemy's tactic is always to distort God's Word and cause confusion in your mind. The enemy brokers in confusion and also in suspicion, for he will pressure you into doubting the goodness and trustworthiness of God. And so as we come to the Bible's first book, let's be resolved to enjoy the simplicity of trusting God and resting in His Word. After all, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8. Let's pray. Father, we stand before you as those who need continual wisdom, cleansing, 
purification, simplicity, empowerment. To live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Christ. To demonstrate our love for you, Father, in practical obedience. To bear your message to the world, to invite others to come and live under the blessing of Abraham. which was sealed for all who believe by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.